I think back to my time as a baseball player and remember how I used to get prepared for a game. Now, I don't know if any of you during times of playing sports or times of whatever, going to work and so on, that you had a routine, a ritual that you went through to get yourself prepared. But when I, I distinctly remember in June of 1995, when my team at Pleasure Ridge Park High School, we were about to play for the state championship. And we were in Owensboro at Apollo High School, about to play Bowling Green High School. And we were at the hotel there, the Executive Inn on the river, which I think has since been demolished. But anyway, we were there, and I remember getting dressed that day for the game. And uh, baseball players have a lot to put on. You don't just put on a pair of shorts and a jersey and run out onto the court. There's a lot of other things. You know, you've got socks and stirrups and pants and the shirt and all that stuff and wristbands and everything that goes with it. And I got almost all the way dressed and realized that I'd put a left sock on before a right sock. I had to start over. I, I took everything back off. I thought, I can't, I will not play well. I can't be prepared unless I prepare the right way. And so I took everything back off, and I started that right sock. I had to come on before the left sock. Now, you can call that superstition. I just called it getting prepared for the game. But that was my routine. I, I had certain things that I did, and then I would walk to, uh, to the bus, and I had my jersey, not on, but carrying it on a hanger, that I would hang up in the bus, and I had an undershirt that I would wear every single game. And in fact, when I was in college, I came to Murray State, and I wore the same shirt all four years under my jersey. It was sort of halfway there by the time that I was done playing here at Murray State. It literally was the same T-shirt. There was a big hole in the back where it just rubbed off. But I wore the same shirt, got prepared the same way every game, and then at a certain time, I would put my jersey on, and button it and make sure that everything was just right and the pants were the right length and wristbands were on and all that kind of stuff. I made sure that I got prepared. And then when I became a coach, there were certain things that I did to get prepared to coach a game as well, which were different from playing because you don't take your stuff to the field and get ready and warm up and all that kind of thing. But I had to be prepared to coach the game. And so I had scouting reports and I had different charts on batters that we were going to face and, and what the pitcher might do and all this stuff that I took with me and was prepared. And now, since I'm really not a player anymore, and I don't really coach at, at a level where you've got to have a whole lot of preparation, you know, seven-year-old baseball, you just sort of go out there and play, now I'm a fan. And, and yet, even now as a fan, and maybe you're this way too, when you go to a ball game, there are probably certain things that you do to prepare to cheer on your team. You may be a tailgater, and you get there so early, and you've got all the same meal, and the last time they won, so you're going to fix everything the same way again. And you're going to do the same stuff over and over and over again. And, 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 and now as a fan, I went to, went to a game Friday night in Cincinnati and saw the Reds play. And, and naturally, they, they don't win the night that I'm there. And they won yesterday and clinched the division. Just so you know, the, the, uh, the Reds are Central Division champs. It's, maybe it's all leading up to that. But, you know, get, get one in when I can. But anyway, it's been a good month for me. You know, the Red and Black have done well. But anyway... But I, I go there and I take my binoculars because we don't sit exactly behind the plate, if you know what I mean. Um, and so I take my binoculars and we make sure we've got all this stuff. And we get prepared to go and cheer on the team. Now, I say all that not to rub it in about the Reds winning the division, but just to say there are things in life that we routinely 
get ready for, that we come prepared to do. And as we encounter the scripture this morning, the teacher of Ecclesiastes is going to draw attention to something that the people that he's writing to, and I think it's very transferable to today without a whole lot of extra effort to see that this can be true in our society as well. They, they weren't prepared for something that he's going to call their attention to, and really, in all honesty, he's going to call them out. I struggled this week with this, this passage of Scripture, and I told Nancy this. I said, I don't want Sunday morning to use the Scripture as a club and just start wailing on you. I don't want to do that, you know, because I, I have to take it all week long, just so you know. I don't want to do that this morning. But I do want you to know that the tone of this passage is pretty arresting. It's pretty forceful. It's pretty intense. The teacher is calling the people out uh, on their worship. And so I just want you to know that's, that's what he's going to be talking about. So turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, let's, let's look at it this morning. Ecclesiastes, a book right after Proverbs in the Old Testament, a book of wisdom. And the, the two voices in this book that we've referred to both times, one is this person known as the teacher or the preacher, the other is the author who directs the quotes that he uses to show us what life would be like if God were not in it whatsoever, a godless experience, and then to show us that ultimately we need to rely on the Lord, we need to fear Him, respect Him, live for Him, and that's when life truly has meaning, because apart from Him, as you see over and over written in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's meaningless, it's futile, vanity of vanities, life has no purpose, no meaning, and that is true all apart from God. So what's happened, a little bit of a connection to last week's sermon, is that what the, the preacher, this teacher, has done is to survey the scene of human experience. And he's looked at the ways that people try to find meaning. And then last week, of course, we saw how people have alienated themselves from other folks. And some of you, as we rolled down that list last week of the competitor and the bum and the stressor and the workaholic and the know-it-all, and, and you, some of you are five for five. And I join you. I, you know, there are parts of me, I just say, oh my goodness, five for five. And, it, and so we see how that ultimately, though, living as those kinds of people, that's meaningless. It's pointless. It separates us. It's not the life God has for us. And, and, and it would be really great, I'll be honest with you, if the teacher had not gotten to the part that he gets to this morning. If the book had ended at 4.16 and not gone on to 5.1, I'd be really happy. Again, I, I, I think it's applicable because what he does this, this, in this particular passage is he surveyed the scene of human experience, and now he turns his attention to their religious experience. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your step when you go into the house of God. Better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they are ignorant and do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth, so let your words be few. For dreams result from much work, and a fool's voice from many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than to vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, also many words. So fear God. What the teacher implies here, 
though he does not come out and directly say it, but in his search for what is actually meaningful in life, he surveys the religious scene, and by implication we can draw this particular truth from what he's trying to tell the people, that even the worship of those who claim to follow God was meaningless. Even the worship of those who claim to follow God was meaningless. I mean, imagine his disappointment for just a second as he surveys the scene and he looks at this godless view of life and he sees all these people chasing the wind and he says, well, maybe, just maybe, the folks who claim to follow God will have some meaning in what they do. And he surveys the scene and all he finds is disappointment. He finds that even their worship was meaningless. The implication for me comes from the fact that he stops to deal with it. If it wasn't a big deal, if it really wasn't that much of an issue, why would he stop to address it in such a forceful way? Guard your step, he says. Draw near and obedient. Don't be hasty to speak. Don't make vows you're not going to fulfill. I mean, he is, he's pretty forceful in what he's talking about. He begins and ends with this idea of you've got to fear God. You've got to respect him. It's, it's evident to me that I can infer from this passage that people weren't doing that. Or else why would he have to stop and address it? I mean, you typically don't talk about things that aren't an issue. We don't make laws about things that somebody hasn't come up with and say, well, I guess we need to make a law about that now because this person's doing this. You don't don't give commandments about things that really aren't going on. So it's apparent that their so-called worship, uh, in that they wanted to draw, uh, he wanted to draw rather, attention to it, what they were doing wrong in the presence of the Lord. They're making the worship of God meaningless just like everything else. In their lives. So, by implication, we can draw the fact that, that, that something about their religious experience he's not happy with, and even that was found to be meaningless. Now, he gives this explanation, and this is where I want to focus this morning on his explanation of why was it meaningless. When he surveys their worship and says, you know what, you guys are doing this wrong, this has no point, why was he saying that? Number one, they weren't prepared to worship. They were not prepared to worship. Look with me in, in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, guard your step when you go to the house of God. Now, of course, he's referring to the temple. The house of God then was the the temple, uh, which was the focal point of all devotion, all worship, all religious experience for the Jewish person. This was the place of public worship, uh, the, the place where God's presence, he would come down and he meets with the people there. So this was to be a very serious thing. The temple is the place where the sacrifices are offered to the Lord for forgiveness of sin and where they, where they were granted this forgiveness from God. And so, so the, this, this temple, this house of God, was a pretty serious thing. And then, of course, if you trace the, 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 uh, the Scripture, you'll note that the worship of God always was, and, and even into the New Testament, and still is, a very serious experience. Entering the presence of God was a sacred and solemn thing. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to walk in with your face contorted and so on and so forth and just try to look really serious when you were coming into the house of God. It was the condition of their heart that the teacher is talking about. Because you know as well as I do that back during this time, and certainly even today, you can make yourself appear to be serious about something when your heart is as far from that as it can be. He's not talking about the way that they looked. He's talking about the way that they approached it. They weren't approaching worship, apparently, with any seriousness. Maybe they're just going through the motions, going through rituals, and counting that as some worship of the Lord. The prophets would constantly talk about how all the people are doing is just sacrificing things. You're not obeying the Lord, so what good is what you're doing? And Jesus would even say later on 
about the seriousness of worship, when he calls out the Pharisees for their, their heartless worship and their just words talking to the Lord. They, they weren't prepared to go to worship. Maybe they were distracted. Maybe other responsibilities that they had took their focus away from the Lord. But I, it doesn't seem to me, as we read the rest of the passage, that this is just some innocent distraction. They just had a tough week. Uh, they were just busy uh, that week and, and sort of not focused in one particular uh, worship service or whatever. It seems as if the teacher is indicating these folks, the pattern of their lives is just to not really care. They just don't really care about the fact that they're going into the presence of God. So there's not enough reverence, he says, not enough focus, not enough thinking about what they're really doing in the temple. That is going directly to the presence of God. Maybe they meant well. Maybe they showed up, but they were really only halfway there. Their bodies were there, but their hearts, their minds were not at all focused. So he says, guard your step. Watch your step. Be careful. Be prepared for worship. He says this isn't about just showing up and doing a few ritualistic things and following some traditions. He says, you're entering the presence of a holy God, and you need to be prepared for that. Think about what you're doing, he tells them. It's not just dropping in on a friend for a cup of coffee on a Friday afternoon. It's not just, hey, let's go grab some lunch today. This is serious, he says. You're entering a holy space, standing on holy ground, going to the place where the Almighty God, the creator of the universe, stoops down to meet with humanity and he says, when you go to that temple, you better take it seriously. Be prepared. Secondly, his explanation includes the fact that they didn't want to hear from God. Not only were they not prepared to actually go, but in their lack of preparation, they, they didn't want to hear from God. Verse, verse 1, the end of verse 1, better to draw near in obedience. Now, some of your versions say better to draw near to hear. Now, that word there, here, is the equivalent, essentially, of a couple of words in English. When the, when the Hebrew would use that word, here, they would imply that you're going to hear it and do what it says. We have to use two words, listen and obey. So, essentially, all right, the, the, this translation that I'm using wraps it up into the word obedience. But understand, they, they had to go first to hear, which for them would mean, well, if you're going to hear something, you're going to obey what you, what you heard. For us, it's two words, hear, listen, and obey. But, but that's the thing. They're not looking to hear from God. He says, better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do. For they are ignorant, and they do wrong. He's not condemning the sacrificial system. That's what God had set up during that time. We, we of course, know that since then, Jesus has come to be the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. But in this time, the system was that God had established that they would sacrifice animals on certain times of the year. And, and once a year, the priest would go into the most holy space in the, in the temple and would sacrifice on behalf of all the people so that their sins could be removed from them and that they then could follow the Lord from a clean and holy position. But he's not condemning the use of the, the sacrificial system, but instead condemning the way that they used the sacrificial system. It's quite possible that he looked at their religious experience and he noticed them going and sacrificing and then sort of checking that off their list and moving on to the next thing and not really considering anything. They go and they just want to offer a sacrifice to get God off my back for a while. I'm just going to throw God a bone and, then, and maybe he'll leave me alone. Maybe this is exactly what he wants. He reminded them that these rituals, these ceremonies are useless and he says even foolish without hearing from God. Draw near in obedience, draw near to hear, 
to listen and obey rather than just to offer some sacrifice and do a few religious things, he says, that stuff, he says, is foolish because it doesn't mean anything. The sacrifice of fools was this performance of some religious obligation, some ritual, some tradition without any movement of the heart toward God. You know what I'm talking about. You've got people in your life. Let's, let's not even talk about God. You've got people in your life that you just do things for and with because you're sort of obligated to do it. You're related to them. You live in the same house. You work with them. They live next door to you. You do certain things because that's just, you just oh, kind of have to do that. But you don't really care. You're not, your heart's not in that. You'll do it. You know, okay, I'll take care of that. But you don't really care. We are all like that. Now listen, I mean, some of you are nodding your head and kind of smiling, and some of you are looking the other way because you don't want to admit that that's true. It's true. It's true in my life, true in your life. What he's saying to them is that's exactly how you're operating toward God. You're doing things, yes. You're doing what you think is required of you and what you're obligated to do, but he says your heart's not in this. You're offering essentially the sacrifice of a fool because you're not listening. Your heart is not turned toward God. You're not willing to obey anything. And instead of listening, they're wanting to do all the talking. What does he say? Do not be hasty to speak. Do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. They didn't want to hear anything. They just wanted to impress God or, or try to get something from Him by their fancy prayer or impress the people around them or just sort of check it off their list. You ever prayed before? And you just, get, you just rattle off your list of things and you say amen and you walk away and it hits you about 30 minutes later that you never stopped to actually acknowledge who you're talking to, to actually acknowledge that God may have something in response to say to you, I have that happen to me all the time. I'll say some prayers and get up and think, I was just talking. I don't really think I connected with the Lord right there because my heart was not ready to listen. They didn't want to hear from God because all they wanted to do is do their rituals, their routines, and move on. Thirdly, they forgot who they were and who God is. They forgot who God is, who they were. Verse 2, he says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Heaven is a reminder of, of God's greatness. Earth is then a reminder of our smallness. God's greatness compared to our smallness. God is far, we've got to understand this. God is far, far, far above us infinitely so we cannot even imagine how far above us i say that and i don't even know the explanation for what i'm saying i cannot explain to you how far above us god is he is completely different he is completely different from us he is not created we are he is not imperfect and sinful we are he resides in heaven with angels worshiping him all the time. I love across the street. I live across the street, though. I, there's no angels worshiping me. My kids don't bow down. Daddy, we love you. They don't do that. It's not, it's not reality for us, nor should they. He's telling them there's this huge gulf that exists between you and between God. He's not saying that God hasn't now come down and God's not personal. That's not the point. Don't, don't misread this. But what he's saying is you've got to recognize who God is. They had forgotten. They had assumed God was just like their buddy. They just go hang out with God for a while, and, you know, and, and, and everything's cool, and they'll be just fine, and we just give God a little fist bump, and we move on. Think about it. That was their attitude toward God. 
Now we know that Jesus comes in the New Testament and brings God to us and that we are brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we still have to understand that though Jesus has come and, and breached the gap between us and God, we are still not equal with him. We are not. And I think too often in my life, and maybe in yours, we forget that. Easy. And you see what he's calling them to. You've got to recognize God's holiness, he says. You've got to recognize your own sinfulness. He is in heaven, you're on earth. Recognize his strength, recognize your weakness. And then he says, because of all that, because you know who you're talking to, don't be careless in your prayers. Let your words be few, he says. Does that mean that you shouldn't pray a, a long prayer? That's not what he's saying. There are long prayers recorded in the Bible. They're certainly godly and received by the Lord. But what he's saying is, it's not just about the number of words, but about being in a rush to try to impress God, to try to say something to Him, to try to get Him to do something, because now your prayer has certainly been heard in heaven, and God is now going to respond. What he's condemning is not the number of the words, but the mindless nature sometimes of the way that we pray. Jesus, of course, would, would go on to, to, to talk about this in Sermon on the Mount. When he would say, don't, you know, don't go babbling like fools and ranting like the Pharisees and so on. Don't do those things. You know, don't, don't pray like them, because all they want to do is just be seen and heard. It's con condemning here not a, a long prayer, but a prayer without the heart attached to it. Maybe it's a little bit hard, I think, and it's unfortunate, but for us to, to understand what it's like to approach a person of great importance. Because in our society today, and I don't know why necessarily, I, I can, can see some of how, but, but we don't have a tremendous respect for those who are in positions of authority. And I don't mean that you just know your role and get in your place and keep your mouth shut kind of respect. I'm just talking about a genuine, genuine respect for those who are in a position of authority. Uh, we see this, and, and of course we see this during uh, presidential elections all the time. We, you know, whoever wins the election uh, this November, uh, there will be some people in the country who will, will be all excited and others who will say, well, that's not my president. We see it every election year, every single time. We, we, we have so little respect for the actual office that a person holds that it's difficult for us to understand. But, but think about it, if, if you really were to go stand before the President of the United States or a royal, uh, royal leader in another country, there are some things you're going to have to do. <laughs> you're going to have to take that pretty seriously. I love the pomp and circumstance that surrounds the office of President of the United States. I love watching shows about Air Force One. I love Hail to the Chief. I, just saw, I, just, I love that stuff. I get cold chills when I hear the national anthem being played, and here comes the president walking. I don't care who the president has been. I've seen, I was born during, uh, well, I'll, I was born during the Carter administration, so I'm not, I'm not trying to date uh, any of you that were born a little bit before the Carter administration. But I was born during that, so I've seen a few presidents, and I love all the pomp and circumstances surrounded with the office. Why? Because it's respect for the office. And what he's saying to these folks is, look, just as you would approach the person who's in a, a great and important office, even more so should you approach God that way. Should you take seriously your time and remember who it is that you're going to. And not only are we going to someone who holds the office of God, but we are going to God who is flawless and perfect in every way, unlike all of our human leaders who are not flawless and perfect in every way. How much more should we respect and admire and approach God with reverence? Don't forget who we are and who God is.
they also said lots of things they didn't mean. Here he is condemning their worship. He says, your worship is meaningless. Why? You're not prepared to worship. You don't want to hear from God. You're forgetting who you are and who God is. And also, you're saying a whole bunch of things you don't mean. He gets here in verse 4, and he says, When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it, because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than to vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. The vows back then, we, this is a little bit different from what we do. But vows back then in temple worship uh, were common. People would make a promise to God, uh, and it would go something like this. God, I will if you will. I will do this if you will answer this prayer. Or God, because you have done this, I now will do this. It, it's a promise. We kind of understand it in those terms, I think. And so this was a routine thing. It could be just a spontaneous expression of praise. God, you've been so good to me. I'm now going to give you uh, four cows, you know, I, whatever it may be. I'm going to give you uh, half of the grain that I raised this year. I mean, whatever it may be. It also could be, God, if you will do this, if you will bless my crops this year, think about it in, the, in their agricultural setting, if you will help my cattle to be healthy, if you will increase my money this year, Lord, then I will do whatever. I mean, we kind of relate to it in those terms. That's, that's what they were doing. So it's a promise to God in exchange for some blessing, some deliverance, some specific answer to prayer. We have to realize, though, that God didn't require his people to make vows in order to be accepted. I mean, you didn't have to do those things. This was to be voluntary. But once you made the promise, it was considered binding. There were no flippant words in God's economy. There was nothing you could say, well, God, I'll do this. And God says, okay. And, and, then, and then later on, God says, you know what? You know that thing that you said? Just don't, don't worry about it. Not a big deal. Now, we know God is gracious, and, and certainly if God destroyed us for every single thing that we promised and didn't do, none of us would be here today. But you understand, this was a serious thing. And he says, don't, don't delay in fulfilling your vows. Maybe they delayed because they got past the point of the emotional experience when they made the vow. You ever been there? Dear God, if you will only do this, then I promise I will go to Africa for the rest of my life and will serve in missions forever. Now, I'm not going to make you raise your hand and ask who, who said that prayer because you're here, not in Africa. And it would be pretty obvious that unless you're on furlough uh, for a while, you have not fulfilled that promise. You know, I'm not gonna, but think about it. We make those kinds of promises to God all the time. And what he's saying is, look, don't delay. Don't get past the emotional experience where, where really you needed God to do something. So you promised the world to God, so to speak, and then you get past it. God answers a prayer, and you say, well, I don't know if I can do that. I've told you before, when we went to camp, as, uh, when I was a youth pastor, we would take the kids somewhere. We would always have our altar call commitment night on Wednesday because they got two more days to deal with what they promised God they were going to do. I mean, you're gonna, we're not going to let you get away with it on Friday night when everybody's crying and you're throwing sticks in the fire and stuff. We're not letting you get away with promising God the world and then Saturday we get on the bus and sing Kumbaya the whole way home, and now it's no big deal. We're going to make you do it on Wednesday night. You want to promise something to God, now's the time on Wednesday night, and you're going to deal with us for two days hounding you about whether or not you're going to be true to that promise. And if you're not, don't get on the bus. You're not going home. You know, that's the way that we handle it. Sort of. But, but you understand, we, we wanted it to be serious. And that's what he's saying, don't delay. He says either, either fulfill what you vow or don't make any promises to God whatsoever. You're not obligated, he says, to make some promise to God. But if you do, then you're obligated to fulfill it. They, did, they said lots of things they didn't mean in their worship. 
Also, they, they ignored the people that God sent to correct and to lead them. Look at verse 6. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Picture this scene. A person comes to temple worship. They promise God a certain number of, of uh, cattle or grain or amount of money or whatever. They'll give to the temple for the service and worship of God if God will do this or that. The priest hears that and understands and knows what this person has promised. God then answers that prayer, and the clock starts ticking. Where's the cattle? Where's that grain you promised? You know, you said you were going to give a certain number of coins to the temple so that we could use it for God's glory. Where's it at? So the temple priest here has some messengers. Let me pick on Drew since he's in the front row. They know where Drew lives, and they send the messengers out to Drew's house. Hey, Drew, how's it going? Good, how are you? Well, listen, we, uh, we know that the last time you came to the temple, you promised that you were going to give four cows and, um, and uh, several bushels of, of grain and uh, 20 silver coins to the temple if God would answer your prayer uh, that Wendy would marry you. <laughs> and it's obvious that God answered the prayer because, Drew, now you are so blessed. Where's the stuff, Drew? And Drew's response, according to what the teacher says, was, well, you know, that was a little misunderstood. My quote was taken out of context. <laughs> I was misquoted. I really didn't say what you think that I said. Well, Drew, we wrote it down. But no, 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 no. I was, no, you, you, it was a mistake. I, I, that's not really what I meant. And we laugh, but isn't it true that sometimes when God sends people to us, we say, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, that's not really, I didn't really mean that. That's what they were doing. They, they ignored the people that God sent to correct them, to help draw them back to the Lord, and to lead them to true worship of God. We think in our time, now I'll just, I'll just use myself as an example. If I were to come to you, and I, trust me, I would, I, I'm, not, I'm very reluctant to do anything remotely close to this, but to, to come to you and say, now, you know, last week when we prayed together, you made the commitment to the Lord to do this, this, and this. Are you doing that? I mean, what would your response be? Get out of my house? Um, I'm not coming back to church? I, what would your response be? I don't know. Would it be lip service? Well, you know, yeah, but, you know, things, it's kind of gotten busy. And, you know, what would it be? They ignore the people that God had sent to correct them, to lead them. And ultimately and finally, they didn't take God seriously. The end of verse 7 sums it up. Now, he begins with this and he ends with this. A fancy Bible term, Bible study term known as an, as, uh, an inclusio, beginning and ending with the same thing. What does he say? The last three words, so fear they didn't take him seriously. This is really the bottom line. They had no respect, no fear of God, no respect for who he is, no respect for his standards, no respect for what he can do. He says, he says do not let uh, your mouth bring guilt on him. Do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. And then he gives a reason. Why should God be angry with your words and what? Destroy the work of your hands. They didn't, they didn't respect what God could do, that he could establish or destroy what they had put their hands to accomplish in life. If. They had taken God seriously. If they had taken God seriously, they would have approached him differently. 
They would have come to the temple with a different attitude. They would have come to hear and obey the Lord. They would have bowed on their knees in humility and praise. They would have said only things that they meant. And you think about the impact that that form of worship from someone who takes God seriously would have had on their individual lives, on their families, on their time spent in the temple that it wouldn't have seemed useless to them, on the nation of Israel as a whole. Think of the blessings, the peace, the wisdom, the victory that they missed because of their attitude toward God. Now, as we survey the scene today, things unfortunately, at least from my perspective, across the board in many churches today, the scene is very much the same as when the teacher wrote these words. And I want you to know that I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but there are two types of people even here in church today. There are those who take God seriously and those whose worship is meaningless. There are those in church today, in this church and in churches across our country, those who take God seriously and those whose worship is meaningless. And there is very little in between. We are often not prepared to worship. Now, we know that we don't come to the temple, but because this is a place where the church gathers for public worship, we can call this a house of worship. We're not prepared often to gather with the church on the Lord's Day. Maybe we're not prepared because it's the only time of the week that we've thought about the things of God all week long. Maybe it's because of how our weekends and our Sunday mornings typically go. Maybe it's... uh, pretty hectic kind of time and you show up and you're just not prepared to worship you just oh, glad we made it Whew. you know I've, listen I this morning was like that for us I was glad to be here maybe 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 you'd think about this with me how many people do you know that truly take time on the Lord's day to prepare themselves to gather with the church for worship I'd say very few very few even people who are very faithful Probably very few folks. We, we, we often are not prepared to worship. We often don't want to hear from God. You think about why people come to church. I wonder how many this morning truly came to hear from God. There are some here today who did. And you know what? You probably heard from God today. Not from me. You heard from God through His Word. There are others who you showed up you didn't really know why you're coming it's just out of habit and you probably didn't hear from God and you're wondering why did he preach that sermon what in the world you didn't hear from God not necessarily though I try to do the best I can not necessarily because it's a bad sermon every week sometimes they're okay not because of that but sometimes let's be honest we don't come ready to hear from God isn't it true we don't I'm not I don't take offense to it you're not accountable to me you're accountable to God I'm just a messenger We often don't want to hear from God. When we gather with the church, sometimes we're more interested in having things the way we like them and making sure that the music or the sermon match the style that we prefer than we are than hearing from God. It's the truth. I'm the same way. I'm as human as you are. (laughs) It's the same way. We often forget who God is and who we are. We see God coming to us in the form of Jesus Christ, and we say, oh, God came near. And absolutely he did, but we are not equal with him. He is still God, and we are still human. And if we stop to consider his greatness, 
and our sinfulness. We stop to consider His love for us, His dying for us, His forgiveness, His offer of eternal life. Our prayers would probably be less ritual, less routine, less rambling, and more God-centered and praise-oriented. I think we would be less apt to just mouth the words of the songs, and we would really listen to them and sing them from a full heart. We'd be more apt to praise God, more apt to offer thanks, to pray and sing from the heart, or just to be silent in the presence of God. And it's okay to do all of those things here at church. We often say things that we don't mean. We make vows, big or small, to God. You made a vow if you're a married person to your spouse. You've made a vow to God on behalf of your children that you would raise them according to biblical standards. You've made a vow to this church, if you're a member here, a regular attender, that we're going to support and be a part of things. And I wonder, to you and to me, are we fulfilling those vows? The things that we promise to God in prayer or in the words of the songs that we sing. Are we truly fulfilling those? Or do we say things that we just don't mean? In the heat of the moment, do we promise God things Are we past that emotional time where we made the promise and now we're figuring it really doesn't matter? We also, we often ignore the people that God sends to correct and to lead us. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to listen to that. And I think ultimately we often fail to take God seriously. Who He is, who we are, our need for Him because of the depth of our sinfulness, what He has done on our behalf to make it all right and to reconcile us to Him. To fear God is to to respect and to honor Him through our love, our obedience, our repentance, our total discipleship, joyful service, true worship to Him. I want you to think for just a second as we close the effect that not taking God seriously may be having on your life, on your family, on this church, on our community, on our nation. We will see those things blessed by God and turned around to Him only when we as believers in Jesus Christ begin to take God seriously. Your life, your family, this church, this community, this nation begins to be turned around in worship toward the Lord when we as Christians begin to be turned around in worship toward the Lord. And we take Him seriously. If you were prepared to worship Him, if you were really to stop and listen and obey, if you stopped each day to remind yourself of who He is and who you are, if you said only what you meant and fulfilled the promises you made, how different would things be? Last thing I want to draw your attention to, and we'll close, is a little insert that I put in your bulletin. Sermon, study, and follow-up guide, and I want to apply it and close with this. Some spiritual exercises that you can do this week. I've listed there the scripture for today and the scripture for two weeks from today when I'll be back to continue this series on Ecclesiastes. But I hope that you'll prayerfully consider applying the sermon in these ways. After the church service today, discuss with someone what you heard from God. Not, did you like what I had to say? Or how I said it? Or did you like my red and black outfit? But, he's ignoring me now, but, love him anyway, my favorite Kentucky fan, but what did God say to you? And I really mean that. Discuss what God said to you. 
Secondly, read a portion of Scripture each day. Maybe go back and, and cover what we've already done in Ecclesiastes. And before you do, ask God to speak to you and commit before you read it to doing what God commands and instructs us to do through the Scripture. Thirdly, write down the words to one or more of your favorite songs to or about the Lord. Read the words as a praise or a prayer from your heart to the Lord. Think about the words and the favorite songs that you have. What if really you prayed and committed those things? List the promises you have made to or about God and be intentional about fulfilling them this week. Make a list this week of all the ways that we are not equal with God and then praise Him for those things and for loving us and dying for us despite our sinfulness. And then, and I say this not arrogantly, but because I know the habits of churches, I won't be here next week, which is why I included this one. Next Sunday morning, concentrate more on preparing your inner person for the church service than you do on preparing your outer person. Not because I'm thinking you're going to try to impress Jim Simmons, but because you know what? It's easy when the cat's away, the mice can play. You know what I'm talking about. That's why I tell you, I want, to know, I want you to know this. I tell you in advance when I'm going to be gone. I don't want to pull anything on you. I don't, I, I, and I want you to understand you can hear the word of God from somebody besides me. I am not, I am not your priest before the Lord. I'm a messenger from God, and so will Jim Simmons be. And you can hear the word of God from somebody. I want you to prepare next week more on the inside than you do on the outside. Deal? I'm going to make you make a promise. Nobody's going to say it. I don't know. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are, we are grateful to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you would... Help us to see the areas where we do not take you seriously. And Lord, that we as individuals, we as a church, that we would truly, truly worship you. That we would want to hear from you, that we would do what we say we're going to do, that we would take you seriously, we would remember who you are and who we are. And Lord, in this moment we do and we praise you. That out of your holiness, you came to our sinfulness and you died for us a death that we deserve so that we could exchange our sinful lives for your holiness and eternal life. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on a cross and being raised again that we might experience new life through faith in you. Make us different, Lord, we pray. Amen.